Well, a very warm welcome to you on this very chilly day here in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> we don't get to say that very often, You don't do get we? to say that very often, and I, I'm kind of convicted people that live in very cold climates, you know. It's cold enough I had to put a long sleeve shirt on, that's how cold it gets here, but it's pretty I'm wearing cold. a sweater, for goodness yeah, sake. Yeah, it's pretty cold for us here in the, in the desert, even former Brits, well, I guess I'm still a Brit, but in the desert, but uh, very warm welcome to you, we're glad you're joining us. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are live with you for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, any honest question you have, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers. So whether it's a verse or passage of Scripture that's maybe confused you, perhaps you're going through something in your life or a loved one and you want to honor the Lord, but I'm not quite sure how to do that, you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe world events or worldviews, any honest question, we're going to delve into the Word to find those answers. That's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I will be literally fielding those questions on our multiple platforms as they come in live. And with us today, staring at his little finger, is Pastor Sean Richards. What's going on with you today, sir? <laughs> Why isn't it pink? <laughs> well, it looks kind of pink to me, maybe like a shade of gray. I don't know. But they call it the pinky. Oh, the pinky. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you walked right into that one. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little rake stepping to start our program. <laughs> Is there anything in the Bible we can find about that? Why it's called? I guess it's not a biblical thing that's called the pinky. But also with us, Pastor Scott Richards, who's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you doing today? Boy, I, I'm doing great. Uh, spent a uh, good uh, part of the uh, time before the program uh, pulling together some details. Really excited about this, about our uh, upcoming trip to Israel. It's going to be in 2024, so it is upcoming yet in the future. Yeah, But uh, we'll release some details. I was pleasantly surprised, believe it or not, at the uh, price uh, for the two-week tour. Uh, it uh, was remarkably lower than uh, what I expected. So we'll, we'll give you details as it comes up. But we are working with uh, our good friend uh, and uh, really internationally renowned tour guide, Ronnie Simone, uh, to put together a tour where we're going to get uh, the most bang for the buck, uh, mm -hmm. being able to see some sites uh, that I haven't uh, been able to see yet in my trips to Israel, and I'm very, very excited about right, how that yeah. agenda is coming out. So we'll keep you we'll keep you posted, wow. but that's coming up uh, probably late May, early June of 2024. So write it down on your calendar. Yeah, the way the time is flying, that's going to be here before you know it. Oh so. gosh. Christmas is going to be here before I know it. Uh, yeah. Don't don't freak me out, Dave. Yeah, no <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a couple of Christmas songs tonight, so yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely upon us. Well, we're certainly glad that you're joining us because once again, this show is guided by your questions. Uh, we are live with you. There's multiple ways you can join us. It's always good to be aware of the different platforms. So you can jump around in case there's a technical issue or anything like that. A Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So bear that in mind when you're trying to find us. We have a website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Just follow the Watch Live tab and you can join us there. On Facebook, also Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. That's our Facebook page. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So that's how you find us on YouTube. We have an app that you can download on your mobile device and even on Apple TV and Roku as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship. Just search and look for the, the red background with the white dove. That's our app. Download that and enjoy. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, where he posts 
just updates on world events and highlights from the show and all kinds of commentary. How's the Twitterverse these days? Well, uh, it's exciting uh, to uh, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Just, uh, it's really amazing how uh, you get into some uh, interactions with people uh, that will fight tooth and nail uh, a losing battle, like, for instance, saying that uh, the accounts in Matthew and Luke uh, contradict each, o- each other about where Jesus was born. Uh, this one atheist was absolutely convinced that uh, one of the gospel accounts said he was born in Egypt and the other said he was born in Bethlehem. Mm. Uh, you point this out to such people and uh, they basically respond by saying, oh, well, you're just being an apologist, yes. which I say, that's the second nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> the first nice thing that was said to me was when an angry man said, oh, well, you're just Mr. Bible, aren't you? <laughs> and that was the, the, the nicest thing anyone said to me. But uh, quick, close runner-up online is, well, you're just another one of those apologists. Well, we don't apologize for our faith, that is, uh, to make excuses for it or act ashamed of it. To be an apologist, Sean, what does that mean exactly? Apologia is a Greek word that means to give an answer. It's a literal, well, not necessarily legal, but usually used in re- reference to a defense attorney. So someone who's not j- apologizing, as you stated, but someone who's substantiating their position, mm. a defender. Very good. Well, yeah, if that's the worst insult they can find for you. And, and we want to... And the we, worst objection. If you are familiar, we do our uh, contradiction of the day. We copied and uh, pasted and printed 100 Bible objections uh, from just atheist.com. They are hardly original. That one on Twitter was number 23. Yeah, and... Uh, if, <laughs> we'll do a lottery next time. Yes. <laughs> if you point out things like facts, uh, people get freaked out. And, you know, there was an interesting article that I read... Uh, about where we are uh, in terms of how the culture has been influenced uh, regarding the whole idea, the denial of absolute truth. Maybe you hear people saying, well, this is my truth. Uh, That's a great example of someone Mm -hmm. who believes that there is no one truth, no one reality that is binding on all people at all times and all circumstances, that the truth is really in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And once somebody buys into all of that, you can say to them, no. The Bible never teaches that Jesus was born in Egypt. It won't sway them in the slightest. Why? Because the idea that Jesus was born in Egypt is their truth. Right. Uh, their tribe believes that. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, a lot of times we wonder why people are so skeptical or really so lost and unsatisfied these days. But uh, really, I think uh, when you have successfully undermined as a foundation of any culture, the idea that there is such a thing as absolute right and wrong. Uh, You know, going back to the the Declaration of Independence, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that uh, that all men are created equal and we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, the the basis of that statement is that there is absolute truth given to us by our Creator. Mm. Uh, You might have an opinion and I might have an opinion, but God's take, if you will, is what carries the day. He is the one who determines reality. Yeah. Uh, but once you abandon that uh, and you you guy get into this my truth sort of a thing, really dangerous even on a personal level. Uh, the best analogy I've ever heard on it, uh, it, it goes something like this. Uh, if you decide to try to navigate life by a light tied to your own ship's mast, mm-hmm. you're either going to end up on the rocks or uh, seriously lost. 
And that's really what we get into there. So what we want to do is we want to come to you, uh, our audience, and, and let you know that there is a way to be able to uh, reach people who have been influenced by this kind of thought, that if God, in fact, has spoken to us, then your opinion and my opinion really has to take a, a back seat to that, that God not only exists, but that we are a visited planet, that Jesus God in human flesh has revealed to us the meaning of life, uh, what happens to us after death, how to make a soft landing after death. Well, if God has done this and has given us overwhelming evidence uh, to satisfy any fair inquirer uh, that uh, God has visited this earth, well, then we should run, not walk to our nearest Bible. So uh, that that's the battle, though. Yeah. And Sean, you probably engage in that battle quite a bit more than I do. But on Twitter, uh, we run into those sort of things. So yeah. you want to follow along on the uh, various skirmishes we have. And Sean, you have a website as well where uh, you get into it on a, a deeper level than, than I do. Yeah, it definitely draws a different crowd. Uh, on YouTube, it's Shady Oak Ministries, the singular for the tree and shade as in shady. But the point uh, I try to make with people is either engaging with them on the basis of humor, on the basis of common ground, talking about the illustrations and themes in pop culture, or in this case, uh, earnestly contending for the faith. I've done series uh, dealing with the top uh, 30 objections to Christianity, uh, engaging with Norse pagans as they uh, unfortunately uh, I got their attention, and then they got mine in kind. When I get annoyed, I start reading. So that uh, is an ongoing series. But, yeah, just trying to be faithful with the little opportunities and free time I still have. But the point of emphasis is always, hey, I want to talk to people about Jesus, and the Internet is still a possible way to do it, so we'll use it while we can. Yeah, yeah, Amen. absolutely. Well, the Word is is perfect, but we're... We're fallen, so we want to be prayerful as we handle it because it's possible to handle it wrong as well. So should we pray before we go any further? Who wants I, it? I, I think that would be an excellent idea. Sean, First you want to pray it. for it? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> Dad, thank you for the chance to be in your word. We ask we'd be in your spirit as well. Equip my father and I to not only give a reason for the hope that's within us, but to enable your saints with the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Well. We had a question come in uh, through our email address, which is questionsforhope at gmail.com. I didn't mention that, so see the way I'm linking all that together? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that right? You're multitasking. so pro over here. Questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address um, that you can send questions in as well. And it's from uh, Talon. I actually met Talon, and I believe I was pronouncing his name Talon, but I think it's pronounced Talon. I think I'm right in saying that. He came to church the other day, and I got to meet him in person. Oh, well, next cool. time, Talon, you come to church, introduce yourself to me. I'd love to meet you. Yeah, yeah. it's very cool to put yeah. a a face to the name. Um, his question, and I, I want to make sure I get the nuance of this, the, the basic question is, should Christians vote for or against same-sex marriage? Now, if you vote for it, you support it. If you vote against it, obviously, you're judging it as sin. But the, the nuance of the question is, is there room for tolerance as a Christian? Is it kind of a hypocrisy for us to vote against gay marriage if we're engaging in other sin in our life? You know, should is there a place for tolerance? Should we vote for gay marriage as a way of saying we don't, you know, we, we don't want to be a hypocrite just because you struggle with that sin and we don't, that kind of thing. You yeah. Know? Um, there, there there, there's an interesting uh, logical syllogism, I guess we would yeah. call, well, behind it's all, it's all of that. that. It is an outright yeah. fallacy. Yeah. Uh, if you listen to the message that uh, Peter and I dealt with, dealing with the two quoque fallacy, that your argument's invalid because you too or you also 
to level the blame on someone else under the guise of calling for consistency in order to dismiss a valid point. What the error being made in all of this is that because of the redefinition of marriage and the promotion of hedonism, that's what needs to be understood here, that in direct conflict with the Christian worldview, we determine God's nature as the standard for morality, not our senses, not our uh, drives for pleasure. That's the first key point. They say because you don't uphold perfect morality, therefore Mm. I am justified in violating perfect morality because there's two bad guys, therefore I'm the good guy, as if two negatives somehow make a positive. In this situation, all you have to understand mentally is two negatives is negative two, not plus one and it's not you. In a social sense, this is where things get a bit more complicated because in a representative republic like the one that we live in, we all have the opportunity to put in our place, vote for representatives and encourage the passing of legislation and law that represents all of our worldviews. And of course, this is also a two-edged sword because of, again, bad rhetoric. People will say, you can't legislate your uh, morality onto me. In fact, I'm so opposed to you legislating your morality against me, I'm going to legislate morality, my morality, against you for doing the thing, and suddenly we're back in this vicious circle. Mm -hmm. Everyone should have an ideal. Even in the secular world, they call it the superego. In the Christian worldview, we call it the paragon, Jesus, our model, God with skin on, the only perfect man who's ever lived. And me not living up to that standard isn't, therefore, a cancellation of its value. It only shows that I am not that standard, which is what every Christian would not boast of, obviously, but be 100% on track with claiming. If, on the other hand, you use that as a weapon to isolate someone from the issue and say, because you're like me, therefore... You aren't in the right, but I suddenly am, because at least, and here's the call here, I'm consistent. I live in light of what you call faults, rather than you committing faults that you also call faults. This is where you have to basically untangle the spaghetti and get down to the sauce to note the illustration. What is the actual issue? Are liberties being withheld? Are rights being violated? And should this be passed into law, or is it already something in place that's being used, as we've seen with the Respect for Marriage Act, with a bit of an agenda to militarize the opposition to Christianity, to oppose your morality rather than for me to feel uncomfortable with the fact people disagree with me, and they exist. This is what we need to clarify with people. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is very straightforward. Those who are outside of Christ stand in judgment before God, not before men. If you don't know Jesus and act like it, I'm not surprised. If I don't act like Jesus, I'm judged by the body of Christ. I'm accountable to others who also claim the same thing. As well as the Holy Spirit who would convict you. Yeah, and when the world, of course, is uh, used by the Holy Spirit to draw attention to my faults, that is an opportunity for growth. But note, not a dismissal of the fact. The fact that someone didn't get a math question right doesn't disprove the concept of math. If a Christian doesn't uphold Christianity, it doesn't disprove Christianity. It means I need to act more like Jesus. Can we start talking about him? 
Yeah. Here's the whole basis and point. So, Talon, when we're dealing with these conversations, you need to first catch the bad reasoning. If we're both negative, that means I'm positive. It doesn't follow. If you call yourself a negative and I call myself a positive, then I'm in the right because at least I'm consistent. You say, but there is such thing as a wrong answer. And when you say, well, you can't legislate your morality on me, that's what you're doing. If it's wrong for one of us, it's wrong for both of us. If it's right for both of us, then we should allow this, and this is key, to win out in the marketplace of ideas. Now, are there horrible Christians out there who couldn't argue their way out of a wet paper bag and give a horrible witness of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him? Absolutely. We try not to be two of them. But if, on the other hand, you're talking about someone or talking to someone about the issue of why would you withhold the right of gay marriage from somebody? Why would you oppose passing this into law? Mm-hmm. And I would point to other people who are in hedonistic lifestyles, heterosexual or homosexual, and they don't want to be married most of the time. They are completely content with cohabitating or living together through civil unions. If you want government benefits for that, fine. But the reason why we're opposing marriage is because that's our system. It was upheld by government as a Christian institution and ceremony, as well as other religious beliefs and ancient ones. But note, you co-opting our terms is what we're fighting for. We're not fighting to withhold rights from you. We're fighting to preserve language and intention because the Bible defines marriage a certain way. And for the law to legislate not only against that definition, it would invalidate our definition of it, which is another problem, but it would also make a point in case that you're trying to proactively undermine what marriage's purpose was. And like Peter Martin oftentimes says when we have him on, the point of emphasis isn't you're doing it wrong, it's what's the right way to do anything. And the right way to do anything is determined by its purpose. If it's just a chemical reaction that we just so happen to evolve, well, then it has no purpose because it ultimately serves no greater good. But if, on the other hand, it comes from the highest good for an intention and purpose that includes the way that many people practice it, not just for procreation, but for intimacy and marriage and furthering those relationships, people who don't know Jesus are completely capable of practicing these things outside of a covenant. And that's the key. If you want to co-opt Christian values, that's what's being opposed. If you want to stand among Christian values, at least define them the same way, or start your own religion, but understand the state isn't obligated to uphold your terms if it's not productive for society. And here's the whole point that's being made in all of this. Oh, well, it is positive for society. Oh, we're just trying to be progressive, or even so-called Christians who would say, well, the Bible doesn't actually give a definition of marriage, and then invent new words in order to muddy the issue. Let's just pretend all of that's valid. What's the real issue at heart? Is marriage a right? And the answer is no. I am not under the obligation of society to be serviced to another individual because that would be in slavery. But if on the other hand, I want to, and this is the whole point, cultivate a positive relationship with someone of any other chemical makeup, be they the opposite gender, be it the opposite interests, be it the opposite personality, be it the opposite, you fill in the blank. I am not owed by the government in a stable society to be provided for in a wife. 
it's just nonsensical to argue this way. If you say, it's my right to marry whom I choose, you just contradicted yourself because you can choose to be married and someone else can choose to be married to you. It is a civil union, not an enshrined right, like food, water, safety, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, these sort of things. If we are preserved the right to pursue happiness and you say, well, my happiness is wanting to be married, you used a Christian term. Why is that? This is where the conversation can become more productive. But if, on the other hand, they just co-op language into saying, you just hate people because fill in the blank. I don't care what you want to call me as far as names. Let's actually deal with the real issue. If you want to use a Christian term, if you want to use a Muslim term, if you want to use a pagan term, observe it accordingly. The reason why we're opposing it is for language, not for the sake of, and I'm repeating the point so it's remembered, not for the sake of withholding people from a ceremony. We're not opposing people's rights because marriage isn't a right. It's an opportunity involving more than one party. And of course, it is a free will exercise that can also be liquidated. And the whole reason why anything is legislated in government is for, notice this, the preservation of good and the restraining of evil in a society. If legislation should pass in order to allow civil unions for hedonist couples, fine. I'm not going to oppose that. It I'll First Corinthians 15. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, what was the name of the individual who was proactively against this in the late 60s when this was just starting to gain steam? Was it Elton John? Um, this was in uh, the early 80s. Yeah. yeah. But he, he saw no need for it, and he is an avowed homosexual. The point being made is this. There is no reason to co-opt a Christian covenant unless, of course, the target isn't the covenant, it's the system behind it. And that's why we're on the defense, because we are, in fact, facing an offensive force. That's the whole point behind this tale. And so in the social standard, again, I've recapped this several times just so it's clear. If you want uh, more information, kind of parsing these thoughts together, by the way, don't Google this, but the book is titled Sex at Work by Frank Turek. Uh, he does a good job in dealing with the legislative mess of people trying to redefine and co-op marriage. I think you would benefit from it. Just again, be careful Googling that. Some other things might come up. Yeah. yeah. You know, the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, the question that obviously comes with it, and I think, Talon, you uh, intimated about this, uh, what business is it of ours? You know, why should we as Christians have a take, have a point of view, yeah. say, on uh, homosexual marriage? Well, a few things. Uh, we should have a take on this because Jesus had a take on the subject of marriage. We're followers of him. We stand for his definitions of these things. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus defined marriage in this way. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, I'm going to care about his definition of marriage. It's going to matter to me uh, because I believe him and I believe that he is God in human flesh and that his takes on these things aren't just his opinion. These are the takes that correspond to reality. This is how God has designed us to live. Uh, the other thing that comes into mind is this. Why should I care about this? You know, Why should I, as an evangelical Christian, care about this sort of thing? Well, because there's consequences to unrepentant homosexual practice. I'm not saying homosexual temptation, but homosexual practice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, 
We read this, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Couple things here. First of all, this passage tells us in no uncertain terms that uh, a life devoted to homosexual practice is symptomatic of an individual who is heading down a road where the ultimate bridge is out. Uh, A person like this isn't going to make a soft landing on the other side of this life. That person like this is going to end up separated from God, but they don't have to stay this way. Such were some of you, Uh, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God gives us the opportunity to be able to turn from these things and to put our trust in him, and as a result of putting our trust in him, having that relationship with him change and revolutionize every relationship we've got. And that is too good a, a blessing to miss. Why would I withhold that kind of a message from someone just because they may be involved with some practice I don't agree with. So, you know, I need to share that uh, with other people. As far as uh, the the country, well, you know, we have separation of church and state, you know, why should you be putting your, uh, you know, Christian nationalism on us? That, That seems to be the new pejorative that's out there, the new insult. You're a Christian nationalist or something like that. Well, uh, again, uh, we uh, see in uh, Proverbs 14 and verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When a nation begins to not just legitimize, but actually endorse practices that are directly contrary to the teaching of God's word, well, as members of a society, we're a participatory Republican form of government. We're not a democracy, by the way. It's a Republican form of government that we have here. I get a vote. And uh, pardon me, but my vote has to be informed by my Christian values. Why? Because the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, including my vote. You know, for this reason, people ask, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I say, I'm a registered independent, but you want to know what my party is? I'm a monarchist because I serve a great king. Uh, I'm an ambassador. For Christ. Uh, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 says, I'm here to represent him in this world. My citizenship is in heaven from which I eagerly await a savior. So in light of this, uh, I want to be salt and light in this culture. And if that means going against the tide, going against the trend, um, well, so be it. If there's consequences for that, then so be it. And uh, when we take a look at things like uh, the uh, the uh, Respect for Marriage Act, which, by the way, uh, was not only signed at the White House, but uh, one of the main guests there was a uh, practicing transvestite, a drag queen whose uh, Twitter feeds are uh, almost beyond disgusting. Mm. And yet this person's being legitimized as an example of this. And, uh, you know, our president said something like, today, you know, you can uh, be thrown out of a restaurant for no other crime than being a homosexual. Okay, yeah, well, g- give, me, give me an example of this. I can show you an example that happened last week of a group of people with Judeo-Christian values who were thrown out of a restaurant right. for having that point of view. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, I would be the last person in favor of somebody throwing someone out of a restaurant because of their sexual practices. It's none of my business in that sense. Until you make it our business and start legislating us and criminalizing us even in order to conform to your view. Rather but it than is my business, I'll tell you, when it comes to looking at somebody and caring enough about them uh, to see that the path that they've chosen, been sold by this world, yeah. is not the right path. Yeah. It's not leaning where they want to go, that God has better things for them than that. To ask me to mind my own business in this situation yeah. is tantamount to saying, you need to quit caring about people. Yeah. And I can't do that right. because my Lord commands me to love people like he did, yeah. whether they accept that love or not. Yeah, yeah. It's good news at the end of the day that we carry. Yeah. I always remind myself of that. It's not embarrassing news. It's not, you know, shameful news. <laughs> shameful news. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm sorry to put you out. It's good news that we have to share. Yeah. And, so uh, but, there yeah. you go. Thank you, guys. Taylor, thank you so much for your question. I hope that helps you out. Definitely a great question and, and great thing to discuss. Good uh, end times question from Yari on our YouTube page there. We sure do. You want to bring them to the top of the list here? Yeah. Uh, Isaiah 19, 16 through 25, does that take place after the rapture? Um, you know, Talon, the passage you're just, I'm sorry, Yari, uh, the passage that you're describing, I believe, is the passage that describes uh, the uh, destruction of uh, Damascus. Is no, that... um, this is uh, Egypt being basically um, given a restored, restored, excuse me, status and the road going from Egypt to Assyria. Okay, yeah, and I've got it now. I've, that I confuse it with uh, Isaiah 17, yeah. excuse me. Um, clearly, this, uh, I think verse 19 gives us the answer. It says, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. We do not see either of these things happening now in spite of what some people might say about the pyramids. <laughs> uh, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyria will worship together. We've never seen that happen. In that day, Israel will be a third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Uh, because of these details, Yari, uh, it's pretty clear that this is something that's going to happen during the thousand year reign of mm -hmm. Christ. Uh, we see sacrifices being uh, reinstituted there. Right now, sacrifices cannot be altered according to Mosaic law until there is a rebuilt temple in place. Uh, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, there is going to be a rebuilt temple. See Ezekiel chapters 40 through the end of the, the book for that. Uh, they're going to be offered not to take away sins, but to commemorate the fact that Jesus paid the price for sins. And there's a whole other question we could get into about Ezekiel 40 through 48 and why is there a temple and, mm -hmm. and so on. But that's going to happen during that thousand year reign of Christ. And now we see that God has plans for other nations, the Assyrians mm -hmm. and the Egyptians. Now you say, oh, well, are there any Assyrians left? Oh yeah, yeah. you better believe there's Assyrians left. And they're very, very uh, 
forthright, maybe I could say rightly proud of the fact that God mentions them here in Isaiah as having a future destiny, a very special destiny during that thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, notice Egypt as well is spoken of as being struck with the plague and healed during this time. We're told in Zechariah chapter 14 that if, uh, for whatever reason, Egypt doesn't go up for the Feast of Tabernacles during the thousand-year reign, then God will strike them with a lack of of water, a uh, lack of rain, until they repent. Well, here they they'll, see they'll that, get the lesson. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll get the lesson. So uh, it, we can see from these various clues that we're talking about the time after Jesus returns, after he establishes his thousand-year reign on the earth, this is going to be status quo in the Middle East. Anything you'd add to that? No, just uh, emphasize that point. When we're determining something's timeline, obviously, look at past, look at present, look at future. Is it happening or has it happened in the past or is it happening in the present? The answer is no to both. So therefore, it would still be a future event. When we ask, okay, where in the future? During the tribulation? Well, obviously, no. Uh, the Antichrist is going to make building an altar to the Lord very problematic. And earlier passages in Isaiah 19 note them being delivered from a cruel king. That's uh, in verse 4. That's who we would believe a reference to the Antichrist. And right. you could read Daniel 11 to note what he be doing in Egypt. Those would be some of his early conquests, and we believe the deliverance will be at the Battle of Armageddon. What's also interesting as well is, note my inferences, in the tribulation that would fit the bill. Could it happen beforehand, a great revival happening in Egypt, potentially, but not in a way that would fit these bills, because as you stated, sacrifices are also being performed, and that required a temple to be rebuilt, but also an authority that would allow for sacrifice to take place other than at the temple, right. and that's another key detail. So when would there be, this is what fits all the data we have, Yari, when would there be an authority on this earth, not just over Judaism, but everything entailing the true and living God, to determine when and how sacrifices could be performed? We think that it would be when the Lord himself is here and could dictate those things without fear of being you know, called before a uh, Judaism tribunal and said, are you representing the true and living God properly? It's like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that, that's why we would say during the uh, after the tribulation, which is also after the rapture. So to your question, yes. <laughs> In short, no. yes. Yari, thank you so much for your question and being a regular on the show. Appreciate it. God bless you as you seek the Lord and his word and as we all grow together. A question from Torbeth. <clears throat> we know that Adam and Eve weren't babies uh, but when Adam and Eve and the angels were uh, created, were they like babies and not in that they didn't know everything and they were still learning and growing, or were they created with you know perfect wisdom and knowledge? Yeah, do we um, know anything about that? Let me read Genesis three and verse eight. This is after Adam and Eve severed their relationship with God, but a normal part of their daily routine was instead responded with dread says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees, and the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So in that passage, we note that God was able to interact with Adam and Eve in a direct and a at least visible, we don't know if a physical way, uh, What's or at least audible, at least. They were able to hear his voice and hear him coming. That also is interesting. When we ask the question, where did Moses get the history of Genesis before his lifetime, and also 
Exodus to a point before his birth. And the answer was when he was with God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. That's where he received the first three books of the law. What's interesting as well is you ask, well, where did Adam and Eve learn their understanding of God, or at least not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that they could eat literally any other tree of the garden that was just as appealing? Well, that would, of course, have been they had direct access to God, and also not a fallen nature, so they couldn't confuse themselves. They couldn't have, uh, you know, been left to their own devices to, you know, conflate or confuse things. If they had a question, they had direct access to God. When they asked a question, they could do so in a way with a spiritual being who doesn't require language to understand exactly where the confusion is and how to resolve it. And, of course, knowing in that perfect existence and perfect relationship, God can also break rules in that they didn't have to, you know, write out their ABCs or Aleph, Beth, Gammas or whatever. (laughs) That's a cross of Greek and Hebrew. You get the point. Um, Aleph, Beth, Gath would be the... Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. Gimeth, okay. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, yeah. They didn't have to, you know, learn these things. God could introduce knowledge, break a few rules. But the point being made is this, um, Talon, when it comes to what we are told in the text, we do know that Adam and Eve had an access to God that was then cut off from that point onward. And before that, they were able at least able to learn how to communicate, how to and understand the significance of childbearing, and also how to eat also how to eat properly, also who God was, also... The ability to name all the animals in a significant and anatomically precise way. Yeah, to think independently, to put in details and so forth. So those would be the deets that uh, we would come to conclusions with, Talon, but if we're looking for chapter and verse, where does it say that Adam and Eve uh, had to learn? Well, it doesn't, but we can infer that if they needed to learn something, they had access to the perfect teacher. Yeah, well, when you're... Uh, created fully grown, and um, Eve made from the rib uh, on the man's side, mm. fully grown, uh, you would imagine that uh, someone who was able to do that would be able to uh, program you with a bit of a uh, the, the background to yeah. be able to function in that environment. It would be very odd if, for instance, they lacked the ability to speak yeah. uh, or the ability to walk. Uh, or all the other milestone things that we see in child development. Mm. Um, it was a special one-off case, but that's how we were created. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Torbeth, that question was from. Um, actually, thank you so Torbeth. much for that question. Yeah, great question. Very interesting to discuss. A uh, question from Annie, and this was a question from yesterday. Thank you so much for re-asking your question, just like I gave you the tip to do. <laughs> so thank you for bearing <laughs> with us and joining us again. We appreciate you. Um, her question is, uh, this is Annie. Um, If God the Father is described as spirit and not having form, then what's the difference between his person and the person of the Holy Spirit? So I guess we could broaden it to the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. What is the different forms and appearance and the way that they operate, I guess? Are they all unseen? Can you see one of them? Will we see Jesus? Okay, um... When it comes to spirit, that's a description in the sense you're using it, Annie, of what they are, meaning that they're not visible, they're spiritual. When the Holy Spirit is identified by that name, we refer to him as such, the Ruach Yahweh, literally, the breath, the Spirit of God. Um, We note he's distinct 
from the Father because Scripture makes a distinction between him and the Father. You can find passages like Isaiah. Matthew chapter 3. Yeah, yeah or yeah. Isaiah chapter uh, 48 and verse 12, and noting that the Spirit of God and the Lord sent the Lord, yeah. <laughs> and noting that distinction, of course, note the numbers. Uh, Mark 1 and verse 9, the Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove, and then a voice came not from the dove, but from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son, so we know the one whom the Son relates to as Father was the one that was speaking. Right. That, those, these are these passages, Ani, that gives us the idea of these distinctions. But as far as, I guess, distinct traits, obviously there is a hierarchy within the Godhead, uh, the Son submits to the Father, and the Father seeks the glory of the Son. The Son seeks to glorify the Father through the Spirit, so on and so forth. But there are things that make them distinct, and we need to understand that. For example, um, when it comes to God's, and this is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from, immutable attributes, the things that he is by definition, that makes him God what he is, just like what makes him spirit what he is. Dave, you mentioned as a point in the side, and it's worth mentioning, um, which one is visible? That would be God the Son, because he took on flesh in a moment of history. Right. Before that, he was spirit, like the other members of the Godhead, but he was able to and was the only one of the Trinity who visibly appeared to men on multiple occasions. We read that in uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Yeah, the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove on one occasion, but we don't see him manifesting himself here on earth uh, again in any kind of visible way after that. Yeah, and of course there's things that are only true of God and are true of all members of the Trinity, thus the one and only God. Uh, for example, the Father is referred to as eternal in Isaiah 64 and noting that not only we are the work of his hands as creator, but he's also from the ages to the ages um, you are Father, you are the potter, we are the clay, noting as creator. In Psalm 90 and verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, before you had formed the earth, notice that, from everlasting to everlasting you are God, uh, him being all-knowing, First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, when even our hearts condemn us, God knows all things, yeah. <laughs> and that's... Uh, an important thing to fall back on. Jesus is also described as all-knowing, not only by himself, but by his disciples. Peter identifies Jesus, Lord, we know that you know all things. Yeah. And even after his resurrection, he continues to emphasize, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's after in John 21. Um, the Spirit also knows all things in 1 Corinthians 2, where it notes that man knows the things of man, but only God knows the things of God. And the Spirit of God reveals the deep things of God, so he can't reveal things he doesn't know. Right. I tried it. It's very confusing. Um, <laughs> another thing is when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we note all three members of the Trinity had a role in it. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, we note that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In John 2 and verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in Romans 8 and verse 11, it notes the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So this is interesting, things that apply to all three. Right. But what would only apply to the spirit? Well, what do we know at least about the Father? The Father is the one who no man has seen, and that's also true of the spirit, but it, is true of the, it isn't true of the Son. The Son took on a human nature in a moment of history and has appeared to men, interacted with Moses, interacted with Samson's parents, interacted with Joshua, interacted with uh, many people throughout the ages in some in more hostile ways than others. But the point being made is that God the Son, truthfully, could be described as the one who revealed himself in a visible way. The Spirit 
is the one who, and this is the unique aspect of the spirit, there are others, but just for the sake of time, um, indwells the church. The Father hasn't left his throne in heaven and indwelt the hearts of the church. Jesus didn't send the Father to glorify himself in John 16. The Spirit was sent to indwell the hearts of believers. So that would be something exclusive about the Spirit that isn't true of the Father or Son. Not in nature, but in function. And that's the distinction. So if we say, so which one is spirit? Well, you're, it's like asking, which one of these human beings is flesh? We're all flesh. That's describing what we're made of, our composition, mm-hmm. how we interact with the world. God is spirit, John chapter 4. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But when God became flesh, we say, God the what? God the Son, right? Not God the Father, not God the Spirit. And we note the distinction again because of those key passages that clarify that fourth detail about the Trinity, that there are independent functions between these members, yet sharing that one essence that is God. Yeah. So again, talking about an infinite being, going to be complicated, but <laughs> should, if uh, your God can <laughs> yeah. fit in your brain, it's probably where he came from. That's the way I like to put it. Yeah. If, and, and Ani, this is the substance of your question, if something is applied specifically to the Spirit, the most direct is that he's indwelling the hearts of those who believe. Jesus isn't physically in my heart. I couldn't fit a uh, first century Although Christ in you is the hope of glory. But noting yeah. my representation yeah. of the Spirit. Yeah. That's the point that's being made. So when we're asking the question, what's true of the Spirit but not of the Father, what's true of the Father but not of the Son, what's true of the Son but not of the Spirit or Father, that's where we would go. We'd go to Scripture. And note, I'm not using illustrations. I'm not using comparatives. I'm not saying like a lot. I'm quoting passages and letting them stand on this because I fear God. (laughs) So misrepresenting him or not, again, if this is confusing, just note those passages. We'll have this in recording so you can re-listen. And if you uh, need maybe links to these passages or would like us to type out the verses for you, I'd be happy to do so. But just keep those things in mind, Ani. That's what's true of the Spirit exclusively indwelling the hearts of believers. But as far as God's nature as spirit, that's describing what he is, not who he is. Yeah. Very good. Anything to add to that? No, I think that's, that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah, great, great question. I cannot wait to, uh, I mean, you guys do a fine job of, of laying all that out, but I can't wait to to know just as I am known, as it yeah, says in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, you know. <laughs> like you say, it's it's above our comprehension, but it won't, it won't always be. Praise God. Um, thank you, Annie, for that question. A uh, question from David, which um, is following on from uh, discussion we had yesterday when Peter was here. We were talking about the question was from my daughter, actually, about the statement you often hear made, God hates the sin, not the sinner. We right. had a good discussion about that. Right. Um, we talked about how if we continue in sin, that we can get to that point where we kind of embody that sin and we become that person and God hardens our heart or we harden our heart. Uh, Pharaoh, for example, hardened heart and God hardened heart. So Anyway, the question from David is once, if we, if we do get to that point where we have a hard heart in an area, how do we unharden our heart? Is that possible or is it sealed and that's it, we're done for? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good question. Uh, and there is a really uh, uh, interesting uh, passage that I, I believe deals with this uh, in, uh, in the scripture. Uh, you know, we read about the parable of the sower. Uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, really, it has been called uh, the parable of the soils uh, in, by many commentators because 
Uh, the sower goes out and sows seed. Jesus defines the seed as the word of God. The seed falls on different kinds of soil. Some of it is hard soil. Uh, the seed doesn't penetrate. The birds of the air come and take away the seed. The birds being a picture of uh, Satan stealing away the truth before a person can believe. Uh, then there are some that are described as shallow in their soil. Uh, the seed penetrates, but because there's a hard, rocky area underneath, it doesn't have any root. It springs up uh, pretty quickly, but uh, immediately begins to wither. Uh, Jesus likened people like that who receive the word with eagerness, uh, but because they have no root, when persecution or trouble comes uh, regarding uh, their the, the word, uh, they fall away. Uh, then there uh, is contaminated soil. Uh, the seed falls on that contaminated soil, and uh, it is infested with uh, seeds of thorns and thistles, and they all grow up together. The thorns and thistles uh, crowd out uh, uh, the, the, the good uh, seed, and uh, it becomes unfruitful. Well, the thorns and the thistles regard the cares of this world, the worries of this life, and so on. And then there's the good soil. Uh, the seed falls and it uh, produces a crop 30, 60, or 100-fold. Now, having heard that parable, there are some who just say, well, you're either one of these four soils or you're not. Uh, you know, some people are just hard. Some people are just shallow. Some people are just contaminated. And some people are good, good seed. Uh, we just don't know who it is. So throw out the seed and maybe you'll hit some. You know, I, I don't believe that that fatalistic point of view is uh, really what Jesus had in mind there. Uh, yeah, there's an interesting passage in Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12 that says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Mm. So what the prophet Hosea was saying to the people of Israel, who were in a just really horrible spiritual state at this time, is it's not too late to change. Mm. And that seems to be the message of Scripture down through time. You know, people make dumb decisions. People rebel against God. People dig the hole very, very deep. But God continues to say, why will you die, O Israel? Get yourself a new heart. And, and a new uh, uh, soul. Uh, and, and so when we look at this and we say, okay, um, I guess, is it possible for someone who's hardened up to turn or to change? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I've been with people who've been pretty committed to rejecting God all their lives, and I believe they made a genuine profession of faith uh, for Christ, either on their deathbed or a couple of days before. And God is just that merciful. Mm. I wouldn't count on that, though. Right. Uh, because, as you mentioned, uh, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, yep. the Scripture says. Why? Because hardening your heart is playing dice with eternity. Uh, you're uh, sort of gambling, in a sense. And I've heard people say this. Well, yeah, that's probably all true, but i got a lot of living to do, and I'm sure when I'm on my deathbed, uh, I'll, I'll get right. Well, you know, if you've spent your whole life hardening your heart and hardening your heart and hardening your heart, yep. uh, practice makes perfect. What makes you think just because you're on your deathbed, you're going to find the wherewithal to do a 180 and turn to God? Yep. You know, so, you know, God is merciful. He doesn't desire any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But he's nobody's fool either. Yep. And if you're so hardened, you're kind of thinking, I can kind of game the system. I can put one over on God. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. You know, there is a line we know not where drawn between hope and despair, the old hymn puts it. Uh, there is a place where you can cross that line 
and becomes so hardened you can't turn back. Pharaoh crossed it, mm-hmm. so it is possible to cross. Yeah, um, he only crossed it by his own will. It wasn't like God said, "Oh, look at that Pharaoh there. I'm going to nuke him till he glows and shoot him in the dark." <laughs> uh, sorry, I was doing a little Norm Macdonald there. That's that's your deal, Sean. But uh, anyway, it was Norm's deal. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Originally, uh, the, the the bottom line is uh, God gave Pharaoh every opportunity, but too much is given, much is required. Pharaoh saw all these things, and he hardened his heart and hardened his heart. And finally, it's interesting, on the sixth plague, it says that God made Pharaoh's heart stiff. It's a very different word. Mm. But uh, then, the next plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Mm. It's like he goes, that's exactly the way I want it. And you can get to a point, however insane it might see to those of us who are on the other side and know how good the Lord is, you can get to a point where you're like, well, uh, I did it my way, and that's what I want sung at my memorial. Good luck mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, you can have it your way and stand before the Lord of the universe and say, based on you having it your way and living your life separate from me, you will now have an eternity separate from me, and you get to find out what that's all about. Trust me, you don't want to find out what that's all about. So if you're considering giving your life to Christ and you're curious about this program and and you like to hear theological discussions and so forth, but you haven't made a decision, be very careful. We're glad you're listening. We're glad that the Lord, uh, and we're praying that the Lord speaks to you. We believe his word doesn't return void. It always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. But if you're sort of sampling, but you're still saying kind of like the famous line from Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, mm-hmm. you're really gambling with eternity. And yeah. in the word of an old German bargain, eternity is a long bargain. Don't do that. Today is the day yeah. if you hear his voice. You know, if he's knocking on the door of your heart, now is the time to say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm going to turn from trusting myself. I'm going to turn from my old ways of trying to find fulfillment and happiness and, and, and success in this life. And I'm going to turn to you. Yeah. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Uh, you do a 180, you turn and trust in God. Uh, put your trust in Jesus. Invite him into your heart. Ask him to forgive your sins. Uh, you know, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, and that, uh, you know, again, that, that he rose from the dead in a moment of history. Mm-hmm. And God will accept you. And, and God will forgive you mm-hmm. on the basis not of anything you do, but of his amazing grace. Yeah. But do it today. Yeah. Don't wait. Do it today. Mm-hmm. You don't know if you got it tomorrow. Right. Yeah. First uh, Corinthians twelve three. No one calls Jesus Lord salvation except by the Holy Spirit. And of course, when a hard heart is starting to form, it's natural. One of the symptoms is you don't want to pray. You don't want to reach out and ask God. You know, break up this ground in my heart. Make me sensitive to you again. Take from me the heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel was told. What was interesting, though, is that you don't have to be alone in that spiritual exchange. People can be praying for you. So if you find yourself just in a place where you're like, Ugh, I don't want to pray right now. I think my heart's getting hard. Well, you may not know how to pray for yourself, but find people in your life who can pray for you. Mm. That can help. Also note as well, when you see people who's just like, their heart is so hard, pray for them. That's how the Spirit works. Mm. It's not even fair. God, God can even get around our hard hearts, yeah. and, and, and His Word is so powerfully created the universe by it. Right. These are the things He uses to draw us to Himself. Yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. I've been reading in Ephesians, and one of the, the themes that keeps hitting me is just how much God loves to be merciful and how abounding He is in His grace. 
And it's a great, a great reminder. I mean, I need it. I need a lot of mercy and grace, and he loves to show that. Um, a quick, we're coming up to the end of the show here, but a quick follow-up question from Annie. We talked about um, uh, God and, and uh, the Father and Jesus and the different forms. Her follow-up question is, if she prays to Jesus or to God, is it wrong for her to believe that, you know, is it Jesus in her heart or is it God the Father in her heart? Is there, you know, who do we pray to? And is it wrong for her to think the Father's in her heart or is that synonymous? Well, the it's not the, in your the, heart. The, 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 bottom, the bottom line, as our prayers are concerned, yeah. is that Jesus said, on that day you'll ask me nothing, but you will ask the Father in my name mm-hmm. and he will uh, give you what you ask. Uh, the, the, the standard operating procedure, we see it in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, praying this way, our Father in heaven. Our prayers should be directed to the Father in Jesus' name, mm. inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So we get all the members of the Trinity involved with our prayer lives, yeah. obviously, but we direct our prayers to the Father himself. Uh, as far as you know, worrying about a, a uh, system error, if we you know, misaddress our prayers, <laughs> yeah. it's gonna bounce back. Me, me. Uh, you know, again, Jesus said, pray to the Father, but we see pretty godly guy in Stephen uh, saying at his, while well, he was being stoned, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I, I don't think that prayer bounced back. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think God wants us to pray in that way, but, um, you know, the, the Lord's just glad you're praying in a sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anything you'd add to that. God's not going to dismiss you because of misunderstood doctrine, but if you insist on false doctrine, that's when the problem is. No, say, no, the Father is in my heart. Check that out with Scripture. Lord, I know you're in my heart. Lord will be like, my son, my spirit, because of my son, but I get it. <laughs> Good enough, yeah. 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 And, yeah. Um, real quick, I can do this in maybe eight seconds. Torbeth wanted to know if uh, the uh, Toronto Blessing deal, the making animal noises, is intentionally done to lead people to the great falling away. Little much of a tribulation of motive. Understand that people who teach false doctrine don't think they are. That's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, and they get all emotionally worked up. Um, You know, uh, it's happened before. You know, let's judge all things according to Scripture, not by our feelings. Amen. Sean, happy birthday. Thank you for being here. Happy birthday birthday. to you yesterday. Yesterday, but that's old news. God bless you. Thank you for being part of the show. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.